Thank you, Mike, Sammy, Kurt. Thank you for leading us beautifully this morning. That's the first, I've known Mike since he was like 11. That's the first time he's ever called me Pastor Mark. (laughs) My number one pet peeve is spoilers. I don't know, anybody agree with me on that? It's like the worst possible thing. So let me just tell you about this new show that came, no, I'm just joking. I hate spoilers. I mean, I, and I, I do a lot of things that make me susceptible to them, and it's, maybe it's my own fault. Like, I'll watch sporting events on a delay um, sometimes. You know, I, 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 it saves me hours. I mean, I just reinvest those dividends into more sporting events. Uh, if you know me, I like sports. Uh, but no, you can fast forward all the commercials and halftime and get through things fast. But like, if you forget to turn your phone on Do Not Disturb, or you check, or you accidentally open a social media thing, you know, because we are robots now we mindlessly it happens to me sometimes i'm like wait how did i get here and then you you have that ruined or it, maybe it's a movie maybe your thing is movies or books like someone just tells you what happens at the end like before you've seen it and they know that if you're a spoiler person we're going to have some church discipline after church service this morning uh no some of us we have been around people who spoil things for me it's my number one pet peeve now that said I'm going to spoil the series right now, right out of the gate. And here's why. Because it's important to have the lens as we walk through this story of Joseph, which we find in the book of Genesis from 37 to the end, minus 38, which is a very interesting but not exactly on on task passage within that. But Joseph's story is found in there. And it's important to have this lens as you work through each of the steps. And a lot of the music that we that we were singing together this morning, like, even like this song we just were singing. It's, it really teaches us to be able to say, it is well with my soul in the midst of very turbulent times. And Joseph's story is great for teaching us that. And, and we just need to have, have this in mind. So it is a bit of a spoiler, um, but it, it's important. We're going to be looking at Genesis 50 before we back up and start at the beginning of the story. Joseph you may know the story. He goes through a trial, a series of terrible events, a huge trial, and it's all started by his brothers who, who really just, I mean, literally caused the whole thing unnecessarily and actively. Towards, at the end of the book, they, or towards the end of the, of the story, they are reunited, and at the very end, okay, spoilers, I know some of us are uncomfortable even hearing. At the very end, here's what happens. I am, uh, but that's just what's going on. At the very end, you, his father dies, Jacob dies, and the brothers are like, okay, he's been holding out this whole time, and now here comes the retaliation. And so they're bracing themselves for this retaliation that they are assuming is going to come their way. But here's what Joseph says in Genesis Chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, he says, says, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In the midst of this very difficult trial, a series of horrible events that happens to Joseph He's able to say at the end of it all to his brothers who caused all of this heartache and pain and trial and suffering, he's able to say to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And he's able to forgive fully and completely in the midst of all of that. 
Again, I reveal this now because it's basically the undercurrent of everything that's going to happen in this, in this story. And it's, for many of us, it's the undercurrent of things that happen in our lives. Somebody might intend them for harm. It may seem like they're intended for harm, but God is intending it for good. And he has a way of accomplishing his purposes in our lives, even when we can't see, like we've mentioned multiple times this morning. I believe that's true for all of us as we're walking with God. If we begin a relationship with God, we pursue him. And a lot of times we look back, and even when we weren't, we see God's hand in our lives constantly calling us forward, even in the difficult times, using those in our lives for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is a very famous verse. It says, and we know that in all things, in all things, not some things, not most things, not in the thing here or there, all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So he can work through very difficult situations. Now, the difficult thing here is that our experience can sometimes get in the way of us actually believing this. All of us in this room have probably been through something difficult that we would not choose to go through again. If we haven't been there, we will. And uh, we, we've all been in that place. Sometimes, some more than others, some in a more intense way than others. It, it, it varies, but... At the end of the day, this is still a, a call of God. This is still a, a, the word of God saying to us that even in the midst of those things, he's working for good. Now, the thing we have to understand is God's perspective is so incredibly different than our perspective. He doesn't just see this life. We see this life because it's in front of us. We can try to, to look ahead to the next life. We can try to understand that there is eternity that is awaiting us, we can, we can seek to understand those things, but it's still very difficult to see it from the same perspective as God. We will struggle with that our whole lives. He sees it from a different perspective. And so sometimes we can't see. Sometimes we can't see for a long time. Sometimes we will never see in this life how something that happened in us or through us or, or around us or to us, how those things are going to work out for good for us or for someone else around us. And yet God is constantly working. If we put ourselves into Joseph's story, we'll understand how that plays out because there's some stuff that happens to Joseph that you, you could see him saying to someone, how, how could God mean this for good? This is, this, this is not for good. This could, be not, this could be for nobody's good ever. And yet at the end of his life, he sees it. Now Joseph gets that completion, that conclusion. He gets to see and experience and be able to look back and say, I see that it was God intending this for good all the way through. We won't all get that. We won't all get that bow. We won't always get to see that in this life. But we will someday, I am confident, we will someday get a chance to do that. Now this story, I forgot my little prop. This story is a three in one. There's three stories that are happening in one. There's like one overarching story. It's on the end there on the ground if you want to hand it to me. Thanks. I forgot my prop. I'm going to go get it. All right, there's three stories that are happening in one. This is uh, like a, they, I think they call this a Russian nesting doll. Okay, this is like Joseph's story. Three stories in one. Joseph's story is happening right here. This is the main story, front and center. It's the one that we see. It's the one that we experience. But within the story, there's another story. So we've got Joseph's story happening, but it's teaching us something and it's pointing towards something else. That story is Jesus' story. There are so many similarities between the life of Christ and the life of Joseph. There's, there's something in the Bible that, uh, that scholars call typology. There's Old Testament. There, there are people that emerge in the Old Testament, stories and events that emerge in the Old Testament, and they're foreshadowing something to come that's a bigger deal that we need to understand in the future. That's typology. 
So Joseph is a type of Christ. He's like a, a foreshadowing of the coming Savior. He, in so many different ways, we could, we could go over and over and over all the different ways that he's a type of Christ. He's betrayed by his brothers. He suffers for the sins of others. His, the suffering that he goes through provides salvation, as we read in Genesis 50, the saving of many lives. All right, so there's, there's far more. There's small granular details of the story that relate back to Jesus or, or forward to Jesus' life as well. So we see Joseph's story, but it's showing us God's story. And not only that, it's also teaching us something. There's another little doll in here. It teaches us something about our own story. There are some very practical realities that we get to learn from the life of Joseph as he goes through various things, as he, we see his attitude uh, towards the, the circumstances that come in life, especially at the end, we can learn very practical lessons about our own lives and we can find ourselves at times in the story of Joseph. So Joseph's story points us to Christ and we can learn so much about our own lives. It's kind of like a three in one. Now I stole that from a guy named Andrew Allerton and you can find his talks on Right Now Media. If you're not signed up for Right Now Media, you should because there's all sorts of good stuff in there. Um, but that just tells us a little bit about how this story teaches us uh, at, at these many different Levels. So let's go back to the start. All right, spoiler is over. We, it's already happened. We're going back to the start of Joseph's story um, as it really uh, circles or, or zeroes in on his life and what's going on in his, in his life. It says this in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. There are three reasons that we see begin to emerge in Joseph's story. There are three reasons that his brothers begin to hate him and to feel a certain way about him. The first one is this, the bad report. There's a little evidence here. This bad report had something to do with how the brothers felt about him. Now, if you read the rest of Genesis in the context, there is probably very good reason for a bad report against the brothers. The brothers are, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on where the brothers do not show themselves as being really uh, faithful people. And they, they're all over the map. And in their lives, they're doing different things. They're deceiving in, in various ways. They're violent. They take things in their own hands. They don't wait on God. They don't wait for permission from their father. They're disobedient. All sorts of stuff is going on. And uh, some of it would, would, you know, put to shame, uh, the, you know, your favorite soap opera. I mean, there's stuff that goes on that's just wildly dramatic. And so it was probably deserving. We don't have any reason to believe that it wasn't, but Joseph is kind of, you know, he's, he's tattletailing a little bit, in, in, at least in their eyes, that's what he's doing. And so they dislike that. And so they probably, in the broader story, they, we know they probably deserve the bad reports. So that's the first one. We read on in verse 3. It says, now Israel, that's Jacob, it's his other name. Um, Israel, because the whole nation of Israel is going to come from him. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So another reason that they dislike their brother Joseph is the favoritism. Jacob, their father, it just straight up says it, he loved Joseph more than the rest of his sons. 
Now, we all know about the, uh, generally about the story, I'd say, partially because there's a play about this. Joseph, probably done on this stage, I'm sure done at this very stage uh, at a certain time in the past, that Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that he, he was just loved by his father, so he made him this ornate robe. And, and there's favoritism here, and there's also potential history uh, about, not, not potential history, there's history about why he loves his son. He mentions it right there, he was born in his old age. Not only was he born in his old age, Jacob was like 90 years old when, when Joseph was born. He was born to his favorite wife, Rachel. If you know the backstory, Jacob labored to marry Rachel for seven years. And then his, uh, the, the, Rachel's father pulled a fast one on him. And after the day after the wedding day, he woke up and he's like, you're not Rachel. You're Rachel's sister, Leah. And then he works for another, this is kind of messed up, all right? The Bible is not boring, all right? There's a lot of stuff going on in there. He works another seven years, and then he gets to marry Rachel. So he's got these two wives, and then he's got concubines, other wives that, that are bearing children to him. He's got all of these kids and this family that's just as messed up as you might think based on these scenarios surrounding it. And maybe even more so. And that's what's going on in this story. That's why there's so much jealousy, so much hatred. There's favoritism. He loves Joseph more because he was born in his old age by his favorite wife. And so all of his other kids, are, you know, they're kind of second fiddle to him. And it's clear later in the story that Joseph's full brother, all the rest of them are half-brothers, his full brother Benjamin is his second favorite, also born uh, to Rachel. And so, uh, born, born to Jacob through Rachel. So th- we see this, this whole situation playing out. There's favoritism that's happening. Now, the coat could have a lot of different meanings. The coat is long. It's, it's very clear in the language that it goes uh, all the way to the floor, and it goes all the way to the ends of his arms. And that suggests that it's not like a coat that the brothers probably have as workers out in the fields and shepherds and all that stuff. That he's, he's kind of, this is like a message that's being sent to them. Even more than that, the message that's being sent could also mean and most likely does mean that this is the number one heir. Even though all of the other sons, he's, he's one of the younger sons, uh, except for Benjamin, he's, he's the son who's going to inherit the most. He's like the new firstborn. Why? Because Reuben, he, he had committed a great sin against his father. He had relations with one of his father's wives. And he gets cut out of the will for that reason. I told you, it's not boring. It's crazy, the things that are going on in this story. So you've got to read the book of Genesis. It's wild what's going on here. And so because of all of this, Reuben, the, the firstborn, the true firstborn, has forfeited his birthright. And it's like this ornate robe most likely represents that Jacob is saying, this is the heir. This is the new firstborn, the firstborn of my favorite wife. That's the one who's going to inherit the most. And so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of reasons why they're, they're disliking him, why they, he becomes the, the target um, uh, of, their, this, of, of their hatred and their anger and their, and their jealousy, which is really the, the last one. Uh, but there's, there's favoritism as a history in the family. Uh, Jacob actually had this play out both for and against him in his life when he was growing up. Because he was born to Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac's favorite was his brother Esau. Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. And so he's experienced favoritism at that level, and it's tending to follow its way through the generations at this point. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. 
We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So the third reason that they disliked him is because of, because of the dreams. Now, the, this, the scripture does not tell us if this was prideful and wrong of Joseph to go ahead and share these dreams. Sometimes we fill in the gaps are like, yeah, it seems kind of like he's showing off at this point. It's one thing to have the dreams. It's another, uh, another thing to like tell them, like, hey, you guys are all going to bow down to me. I think, though, at worst, at the end of the day, at worst, it's unwise. And, uh, and maybe it's a hint of pride in there. But it's not deserving of the level of hatred that they put on Joseph. Clearly, what's going to happen in, in the story, none of it justifies what went on. And so he, there's, there's at least three reasons, and really it comes down to jealousy in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But there's the bad report, there's the favoritism, there's these dreams, this understanding that maybe Joseph is going to be, become great and somehow rule over them. And they're just uncomfortable with the whole thing. And they dislike him and they hate him and their, their hatred and their jealousy, it's building up more and more. So for whatever reason, Jacob thinks it's a good idea to send Joseph again to check on the brothers, even though all of this is happening in the background, and they hatch a plan. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit uh, if you're following along in your Bible or on, on your phone or whatever, uh, but it will be up on the screen as, as we've been going through. Uh, second half of verse 17 says, so Joseph went after his brothers and he found them near a dolphin. So he's going to check on them. He finds them, but they saw him at a distance before he reached them and they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, the oldest, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So really, I think the implication he's giving to to his brothers is, look, we'll throw him in this cistern. It's out here in the wilderness. He's still going to die, but we don't actually have to be the ones to shed blood. So we can be innocent of any like official wrongdoing. You know how you played this out in your head before. It's like, well, if I don't actually do it, I'm not in the wrong, but I still get the benefit from doing something that would have been wrong. Um, you know, th we've been here before. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, he, they're trying to say, look, we will, we will still kill him, but we won't actually be guilty of killing him. So like we can say, we can pass the red face test. If somebody he said, hey, you kill your brother? No, no, not at all. We just left him to die. And so that's what they're, that's what they're going for. They're trying to get around it. Uh, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. I think it's so interesting. The first thing they do is they take off this symbol, this symbol of, of his elevated status in the family, this symbol perhaps uh, of his being the, the heir, the, the considered the firstborn, which was a big deal in that culture. They strip him of his robe, that ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So they seem to be leaving him for dead. Check out what they do next. This part is almost shocking. 
as you read it in the narrative. He's reading along. This can't help but pop off the page. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. They're like, hey, from all this brother killing, I'm, I'm just really hungry. It's time, it's time to eat. There's just there's no conscience coming up here. They're not sorry about their actions. They are just, they're set in their ways. And they're not paying attention to anything but what their desires are in the midst of this. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His, his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph up uh, out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern, so Reuben must not have been here during that whole discussion, and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, back to the main plan, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, it's a sign of lament, put on sackcloth and mourned for his sons many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. This is the darkest time in Jacob's life, and he's been through some difficult times. This also has to be the darkest time of Joseph's life, and the brothers are having a meal. I just wonder if there's any point in time where they were feeling convicted or feeling sorry, having any regret, because it's not shown in this story. Again, not just in this chapter, but throughout the whole story of Joseph, there's three stories. Joseph's story pointing us to Jesus, and we find ourselves in his story. In multiple characters, by the way. But there's a lot of, a lot of those things that happens just in this chapter alone. And we'll be touching on the other things as we go through the life of Joseph over the next few weeks. But the, the, here's some typology that's just in this chapter. First of all, it's a miraculous birth. We know that about Joseph's life born to his father in his old age, to his wife who was considered barren at the time, which was a, a thing in their culture that reflected upon the person. Um, it, now, now we know like, the, there's tons of things that cause that. It's a very difficult thing still to this day, but the shame around it, people would literally shame one another for being in this condition. And so uh, it, it just adds insult to injury. It's unthinkable. But that's how it worked in that culture. It was like a, a, an object of shame to be barren. And so uh, it, there's a miraculous sense of the birth uh, of Joseph, which is just like the birth of Christ in a, in a way that it was a miraculous birth. Not only that, he's hated and he's persecuted for telling the truth about himself and even prophesying, to sharing what God has revealed about himself. He, it's foretold of the future that he would be in an exalted position. That's another aspect of the typology that's similar to the life of Christ. He's plotted against by his own people, his own brothers. He's stripped of his robe. He's sold for the, as the price of a slave. 
and he's taken to Egypt after escaping his death. All of these things happened in the life of Christ. And so it's pointing us towards our Savior, Jesus. But there's also some practical things for us to work out as we walk through this story as well. And there's three things I want to leave us with this morning, and we'll continue through the life of Joseph. The first one is this. It's simply that jealousy is dangerous. Jealousy is dangerous. There's a special and sort of unique aspect of jealousy uh, that is dangerous and poisonous to our hearts. Poisonous to our hearts. We see this again in the life of Jesus, like we've been mentioning. Jealousy is a big part of the reason why Jesus was sent to the cross by the religious teachers. They were jealous of the attention that, that his ministry was drawing. He, they were jealous of the fact that he, and, and he was also calling out truths about them, but it, it, it came back in a sense to that, that emotion, that sense of jealousy. Proverbs 27 verse four says this, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Somehow, Jealousy, in a lot of ways, is worse than anger or fury because it's a poison to our hearts. It takes us down from the inside out. So there's something specifically dangerous about jealousy, and yet it's an emotion that so many of us feel so often as we walk through life, and we can sense it. When something goes well for someone else, if you're not happy but you're annoyed somehow, you can sense it, right? That's jealousy lurking. And wherever that is, it's a hint for us. And we all experience it. It's a hint for us to say, zero in on that. Zoom in on that. Let's root that out. That's where we need to invite God's spirit into our hearts to help us to deal with that. What is, what is the reason for my jealousy? A lot of times, it's nothing to do with the other person. It's everything to do with ourselves. And understanding and recognizing God's value that he places on us recognizing our value as humans as well and, and feeling better about ourselves because of just a confidence, not a pride, but a confidence um, that, that comes through getting our identity in Christ. That is probably the best remedy for jealousy. Jealousy is dangerous. Oh, we got a Bible reading going on over there. <laughs> uh, second thing, second practical thing. Dysfunction tends to produce Dysfunction. Dysfunction tends to produce dysfunction. Remember the backdrop of this story. If you don't know the backdrop, I encourage you to read it. Because like I said before, uh, the book of Genesis is far from boring. Far from boring. There's a lot of things that happen in there that, that really can capture our attention. Um, and there's a backdrop of dysfunction that's happening here. But we see it growing. And we see one decision and you're like, that, that doesn't, I don't see how that would work. Like with Jacob, being married to two sisters and then having other wives as well. Like how, I don't think, I don't see how that's going to work out so well. And then lo and behold, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not God's plan for, for Jacob. It's not what God would want for Jacob. But that's what he does. That's the decision that he makes. And it plays out and it, and it breeds dysfunction in his family. Dysfunction tends to produce dysfunction. It goes back through his family line as well. We see some dysfunction in Abraham's family. We definitely see dysfunction uh, begin to rear its head in Isaac and, and, and Rebekah and, and Laban. That's, his, uh, that's Jacob's father-in-law. We see a lot of dysfunction and we start to see a lot of deception taking place. And that deception continues on. So, for example, Jacob got his birthright through deception. He colluded with his, mo his mom to fool his father, who preferred the older brother Esau 
They were twins, but he was technically the older brother. And Jacob engaged in a deception in order to gain his position. And so now, in a similar way, dealing with the birthright, Jacob's sons are now deceiving him. Dysfunction tends to produce dysfunction when we don't deal with it because it lurks in the background and it gets passed on to people around us. We've heard the term hurt people, hurt people. When we're, when we're hurt, when we're wounded by something and we haven't been able to heal properly from that, we tend to hurt others, inflict that kind of pain on others in very similar ways. So these same themes are resurfacing through the family line in the book of Genesis. We need to deal with dysfunction. We need to deal with wounds. We need to invite God into our lives to do work in those areas. That can look all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it's just being able to speak about it with somebody. Maybe there's some stuff that's gone on in your life that you haven't shared with anyone who's, who can help you to process that. That can happen in a life group setting. That can happen in a one-on-one setting. That can certainly happen in a therapeutic setting. Sometimes it, it gets to that level where we need to certainly uh, find a good Christian therapist who can help walk us through those things. But I think when our relationships are strong, we can also lean on those to deal with some of the dysfunction that we see surface in our lives. We need to deal with dysfunction. We need to deal with wounds. We can't just try to bury them and move on. We need to see what kind of damage is being done underneath the surface so that dysfunction does not continue to produce dysfunction. And then third and final practical thing for our lives is that God can work in us. I would even add through us and in, and in spite of us, sometimes all three at once. He can work in us and in spite of us. He can work through us as well. He does all sorts of things. He does it in this story. He does it in our lives as well. In a situation that seems awful, God is able to turn it around. So sometimes when we see the circumstances, we don't understand how it all plays out. God's still working in that. He can be working in spite of us. He can be working in us. He can be using us to work through us. All sorts of different ways that he can work in those scenarios. But when we look at our circumstances and they look bleak, remember that God has a different perspective. Now, I said I, I dislike spoilers, okay? But I've given you 25 years of a head start on this one, right? If you haven't watched it in 25 years, you're not going to watch Do we agree? Can I spoil a movie that's 25 years old? Okay, all right, good. I thank you for your permission. I got, I got enough nods. It's a quorum. Uh, we're gonna go forward with it. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm borrowing this illustration from a guy named Albert Tate, who just, I, I just love this because it really speaks to it. But maybe you've seen this movie uh, from 1999, again, 25 years old, called The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense. I don't remember if I'm allowed to recommend this movie or not as a pastor, but I'm just gonna roll with it. Uh, I'm getting a no so I've never seen it. No, I have, I have. Um, no, The Sixth Sense. So basically in this movie, The Sixth Sense, there's, there's this character and he's like the main character and you're walking through the movie and some weird stuff's happening. You're not really sure what to make of it. But of course, th- th- there's a huge twist that occurs. And at the end, I hate being the spoiler, but again, 25 years, okay? Uh, at the end, you realize that this dude has been dead the whole time. He's been dead. He's not alive. And then if you're like me, what you ended up doing is at some point, maybe right after, maybe a little while after, you rewatch the movie and you rewatch that movie with a different lens because you're like, okay, here's the scene. He's talking to his wife. She's kind of ignoring him, giving the cold shoulder, but he's been dead the whole time. He's dead right there. 
And then you move along, and then something else happens. He's having the conversation. There's one kid who can actually speak to the people who are dead or whatever. Okay, it's not real, but like, it's just it's an interesting story. And, and he's having this conversation. He's explaining to him that I see dead people. He's dead right there, too. The whole way through, every single scene, and you're like, oh, now it makes sense in a different way. He's been dead the whole time. And sometimes when we walk through our lives, what we can do is we are living with the perspective that we have. We're living with the perspective of seeing this for the first time. And what can go on as we, as we live our lives and what I believe is going to happen, when, if not at the end of our lives, when we are with God in heaven, we will look back over the course of our lives and we'll be like, he was with me the whole time. He was there with me the whole time. That time I felt, I felt, I knew I was alone during this period, but check it out. He was with me the whole time. And then we go through another season of life. We're like, that, this is unexplainable. There is no possible way that God could use this kind of circumstance for good. And I've been through some of those and you probably have too. There is no possible way that God could use, no, God was with me then too. And he was using it for good. Sometimes that perspective is going to, it's going to transfer, it's going it's to turn around so much at the end of our lives that when we see it, it's going to be like we're seeing the movie for the, for the first time, and we're going to be seeing it through a completely different lens. And I believe me, I understand sometimes in our circumstances, we don't see this. We don't see how we could say along with Joseph at the end of his life, God intended it for good. But I believe in my heart of hearts, that he's going to do that for you in your life as well. You may not get those answers on this side of eternity, but he's doing everything and he's allowing everything in our lives to work out for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you do have a completely different perspective and that you will use our circumstances, good and bad, for your glory and our good. Help us to trust you in the midst of that, Lord when we're dealing with tragedy, when we're dealing with success, victory, heartache, loss. God, would you just help us to be open to what you're doing? Lord, if we don't get to see this, if we don't get to, to see our lives and the end of the story really get tied up with a bow like, like Joseph does, in a sense, seeing his family be saved from the famine and all of the things. If we don't get to see that in this life, still help us believe, Lord. So we know you're good. We know you're faithful. Walk with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we have a prayer team that's gonna be down up in the front in the corners. If you need prayer for anything, maybe it's something in response to seeing God's word, hearing God's word this morning, or maybe it has nothing to do with that, they would, it would make their day, make their week to pray with you. So I invite you to come down and join that prayer team. If you're a visitor, don't forget to come see us at the welcome desk. We look forward to continuing on in the story of Joseph next week. Have a great one.